We turn in God's Word this morning to Genesis 49. Jacob, nearing death, he's met with Joseph, spoken to Joseph. Now he calls his other sons to him and he speaks prophecy concerning what it is they are going to experience and how, what they're going to face. And so this is, a, this is a bit different than what we're used to. There's some strange imagery here. We're not going to be able to cover it all this morning. Uh, we're used to dialogue in, in, this, uh, in, in this portion of Genesis between the various characters, but here are the various persons. But here we have a monologue of Jacob to his 12 sons. So we want to listen carefully. And then we're going to look at some of the points of this chapter this morning, though, we'll not be able to cover all of it. Genesis chapter 49, listen to the reading of God's own holy word. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, and in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So far the reading of God's own holy word. Let me add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of this morning. Dear ones, this is a passage of prophecy. It's a bit different. There's some strange imagery here, and as I've said, we're not going to to look at all that imagery, cover all of it, but we want to look at this uh, uh, prophecy as it pertains to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the first time we've heard that designation in the Scripture, verse 28. These are the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. The big picture then is this. The theme in Genesis is that God is going to bless His people. Genesis 1.28, right? He says, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Talks about how he made them male and female. Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to bless you. That's how he starts out as he's speaking of the beginning of creation. It's about blessing. And here, we see that he's blessing his people. Here, the family of God is being blessed by a prophet of God, Jacob by name covenant line has been growing. You see Abraham, you see Isaac, now Jacob, Abraham. You'll understand with Abraham, he had one son that was received, one son that was put aside. Ishmael was set aside. We see Isaac, and what happens there? You see Jacob is received, and Esau is set aside. Now here is Jacob with all of his sons, and they're all received. None of them is turned aside. They're all part of this Family. Now, there will be different stories and different backgrounds and different uh, uh, experiences that they'll all go through. Yet God is saying to Jacob, I'm fulfilling my promise, and I want you to tell that to your sons. What does he say to, to Jacob? He says, I'm going to make you a what? A company of peoples, he says to Jacob. Back in chapter 48, verse 4. Now, here we see that being established. Now, there's an imbalance of words between the sons. Most of them receive short address. Judah and Joseph receive the longest addresses to them. We want to look at that. Many sermons could be preached on this chapter, and many have been preached on these verses. But I want us to look at this in in one sermon. So, as we turn our attention, we look first. Jacob is gathering his sons together there in chapter 1, and he says, now listen to what will happen to you in days to come, what's, what's coming. And he's, by God's enablement, making these prophecies concerning his sons. Imagine that the, the sons are somewhat uh, uh, troubled by what they might hear. Think about all, that's, all the water that's gone over the, over the bridge, as it were. They've, they've sold their, their brother into slavery. They've sinned against their father in, in, in so many different ways as we, as we see hints of that, some of that in, this, in these very words. What's he going to say? But he says, draw near. I, wanna, I want to speak to you and tell you what's going to happen in days to come. 
They're wondering what he's going to say. Well, he starts, it goes more or less in birth order. He starts with Reuben. You're my firstborn, my might, the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. It's all going well so far. Reuben says, this sounds good. And then he says, yet you are unstable like water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. You sinned. You defiled it. The firstborn generally had uh, generally received privilege, but the prophecy indicates that he will not have that privilege for he had sinned against Jacob by trying to take control of the family and by doing so he forfeited those privileges of the firstborn. And he turns to his brothers. Jacob turns to his brothers and he says, he went up on my couch. He's, it's a change of tense there in that, in that fourth verse. And it's a, he's speaking to Reuben and then he turns to the brothers and he says, this is why. This is, this is why he was not receiving the privilege of firstborn. He sinned and severely. Therefore, Joseph receives the rights of the firstborn as we saw in the last chapter. What is Jacob doing? What, what are some lessons that we can learn? As he's speaking to Reuben, he's, telling, he's warning them about the lack of self-control. He says, do not act as this brother. Do not act in this way. For this is to sin against the Lord, to do that which the Lord would not bless. He was putting himself forward. He he, as though he, though he is dying, is able to say to his sons, to call sin, sin. The Bible warns against lack of self-control. Proverbs 25 says there, Proverbs 25, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Well, he starts that way in the very beginning, doesn't he? After the fall, what does he say? Right away to Cain, he says, sin wants to master you, but you must control it. You must resist it. How will that happen? By looking to God. And what does Cain do? He says, no, I, I call the shots around here. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to build myself a city. I'm going to have my own way of protecting myself and establishing myself, even if you're not with me. Though he did confess to great fear, saying that he was certain he was going to be killed because of what he had done to his brother. There was fear there, but he was fighting against it, but with his own in his own ways. In the very beginning, even before that, God warned his parents, the day that you sin, that you do not walk in my ways, you will die. It will destroy you. So Reuben loses his primacy. When the tribes enter Canaan, there's no mention of his status at all, of firstborn. 400 years later, they're going to Canaan. Reuben's not even his Status as firstborn is not even mentioned. And not a single judge, not a single prophet, not a single king came from this tribe. So we see fulfillment of Jacob's words in that sense. He's fading from national history. Sin has consequences. Reuben had that special place, but he did not think it a big thing to sin against God, and therefore he and the future of his family was altered. Next, Jacob addresses Simeon and Levi. He groups them together. He addresses their taste for violence. Their weapons, uh, weapons of violence are their swords. It says in verse 6, I want nothing to do with violent men, with men who are vengeful. 
Bible warns against that elsewhere, well, in many places, but when I was thinking of this week was Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, make no friendship with a man who given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Now, why does it even have to be said? We say, well, of course, we don't want to ally yourself with an angry man, but, but if they're successful, what do we do? Well, yeah, it's a little bit of a character flaw, but hey, he's winning. I want to be on the winning team. I want to go with him because he's winning. Bible warns, no, don't ally yourself with such a person. Fathers, teach your sons to be strong. Teach them to be fearless, to stand against evil and against sin. But don't teach them to be vengeful, to get even. Boys, resist evil and do good. The Bible says that, right? Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As Jacob talks to his sons here, he's, in effect, stressing these things. Vengeful spirit is very often found in the hearts of those who doubt that God's justice will prevail or that his timing is right or that his wisdom is truly wise. That's what's behind revenge. It's a doubting that God will do what he says he's going to do, namely punish evil. We can and we must stand against evil, but it is not our place to take revenge. Paul says that in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. What does that mean sometimes? That sometimes means absorbing hurt. It's not weakness, it's meekness, and meekness is power under control, as Christ exhibited so well in his life. Power under control, entrusting ourselves to the Lord and doing what is right, not being fearful to speak up, but not being vengeful in the way we act. These sons were cruel and their actions were wicked. And Jacob says, verse 7, Cursed, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, how do we see that happening? Well, they are divided. They are scattered. The tribe of Simeon shrunk and was scattered in the history of Israel. In the first census of the people in the wilderness, after they've been delivered from Egypt, the tribe numbered 59, over 59,000 men. And 40 years later, a generation later, they're just above 22,000. Eventually, the tribe is absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And when Moses blesses the tribes in Deuteronomy 33, you can look at that later, uh, he doesn't even mention Simeon. They're omitted. We see how Jacob's words are fulfilled. Well, the Levites, what of the Levites? They're scattered in a different way. They're never given a territory of their own. They're dispersed among the 48 Levitical cities. Now, there, there, is, there is something good that comes out of this, this uh, uh, judgment, and that is they go about, and what do the Levites do? They're teaching the Word of God in the various places so that, that the people of God don't forget what God has said. So God takes that which is, is a difficult, harsh word, but turns it to good. Some prominent Levites, Moses and Aaron, Phinehas, Eli, Ezra, and John the Baptist. Well, Jacob goes on with the sons of Leah, and he comes to Judah, and we need to listen carefully to some of the amazing things that are said of this tribe. 
It's rather surprising when you think about it because Judah is not exactly the, 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 the paragon of virtue in this family. He's not the one who's the, the, the one held up as, as, as uh, blameless. What does he do? He's the one who suggests, well, let's, let's just not, let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him. In chapter 38, we didn't even look at that chapter because of the way that that chapter is set up, the, the depth of that perverse sin that Judah committed. He's probably shaking in his boots. What's dad going to say to me? What's my future look like? He's a great sinner. Well, we won't trace through this book what happened to Judah, but Judah had a change of heart. And we see that vividly when he's pleading in chapter 44 for his brother Benjamin. You remember the story. We don't have time to look at all the details, but he, he goes and, and Joseph says, I want your, 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 son, your brother here. And when his brother is there, uh, he wants to return home. And he says, no, I want Benjamin to stay. And Judah says, no, I'll, I'll, be, I'll take his place. I'll be the substitute. I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll be the one who bears punishment. He's pleading for that. And in this action, we have a picture of the, what his greater descendant would do, being that substitute. One of those Old Testament passages that so clearly speaks of the Messiah, we, we need to slow down just for a moment and, and look at it. Something like Genesis 3.15 or Isaiah 53, we want to look at that and what's, what's going on. We can't look at all of it this morning, or we won't look at all of it this morning, but in verses 8 and 9, Jacob speaks of Judah's lion-like dominance. Your brothers are going to praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, crouched as a lion. The sons of Jacob will bow down to Judah's descendants, and we know many of the kings come from this tribe. We think of David and Solomon and Josiah. But these kings would pass away. No, Jacob's speaking of some, someone greater, the one whose scepter, who will receive the scepter. It will not depart from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, namely to Jesus image of Judah as a lion that became so common in the history of God's people that Jesus became known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 verse 5 speaks of him that way. The prophecy is about the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one to come before whom every knee, before whom every knee would bow. Jacob goes on to talk about the blessings associated with this king's reign. In verse 11, he talks about the abundance and prosperity of his reign. We'll go into all how that imagery uh, lays out to, to, to come to that conclusion, but that is the, the, what we're to draw out. There's abundance and prosperity going to be associated with this one to come. And it's interesting to note that Jesus' first miracle when he comes uh, uh, into his public ministry is what? He changes the water into wine. Here in chapter, or verse 11 rather, it's talking about wine being in abundance. He's the one who says, I am that descendant of Judah whose kingdom will bring abundance and peace and joy, not just for earthly celebration, but for eternal security. Well, then Jacob turns to Leah's sixth and fifth son. Not so much is said of Zebulun and Issachar. Issachar seems to have Seems to have potential, a strong donkey, an animal with, with strength, and yet 
History records that the two tribes, Zebulun and Issachar, are led into forced labor, slave labor in Canaan, until the Lord delivers them by the hand of Deborah and Barak. So there is servitude. There are times of suffering. God doesn't say, well, the people of God, once they, once they set, establish themselves, it's just all going to be uh, uphill, or it's all going to be smooth sailing from there on. No, there is times of hardship, and there's reason for that. Calvin, John Calvin has some interesting commentary on Issachar. He says, not direct quote, but in effect says, because of prosperity, Issachar decides they don't care about subjection to their enemies or to the paying of tribute as long as prosperity remains. As long as they can pay the bill, they don't care to be under subjection to, to the enemy. And he says they were quiet, not courageous. See, this is interesting because here there's further elaboration on the application made under Simeon and Levi or further application that we can make. We're not to act vengefully, to be sure, but neither are we to be silent and not speak the truth in order to maintain our prosperous condition. It seems to be something of what Issachar was doing. They were, they were going to be a tribe that says, well, you know, as long as, the, as long as the wine flows and the food is plentiful, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll put up with it. But they were quiet and not courageous. We're not to be silent about what is sin against God or to compromise with our neighbor simply because they promise peace and prosperity if we keep our mouths shut. We need to speak the truth. Well, Jacob then speaks to Dan. Son of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, though a son of a concubine, Dan has a right, has the full rights of a son. That's important for us to see how God brings in this one and treats him as son. He will judge among the people. Does anybody know the noted judge from the tribe of Dan? Samson. That's another sermon for another time. We can say a lot about Samson. But he was one who acted, as Dan has described here, as one who would bite at the heels, who had covert ways of, of making, establishing large victory by single man. Well, Ju- Jacob then turns to the son of Zilpah, uh, sons of Zilpah. He speaks of Gad. Tribe is always under attack. As we, it, we, he's talking about that here, but he also, uh, and he says that they're going to suffer much. He also says that they will return the favor, if you will, by attacking others. And this is an interesting, this is an interesting side note. First Chronicles 12 talks about some of the men of Gad. It's really quite something. First Chronicles 12, talking about the mighty men that joined David, verse 8 says this, the Gadites went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with a shield and spear, Their faces were like the faces of lions. They were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. And jumping down at verse 14, these officers just mentioned, says here, the least of them was a match for a hundred men and the greatest for a thousand. They must have been quite something. As far as fighting force goes, I want them on my team. But Jacob says, That their strength is not in themselves, 
in all of this, so as, he's, as he's speaking to his sons, he's saying their strength needs to be in the Lord. Though they will suffer, they can look to the Lord and he will deliver. That's a message that we need to hear today as a church, as a church in the world, that we will suffer, though we do know this, that the greater son is coming, the greater son of Jacob is coming, and he has won the victory, and he will deliver his people. Well, another son of Zilpah, Asher, the tribe will inherit very fertile land and be the provider of the nation's food. We can think of how God does provide uh, so richly for us. He provides food and he provides hands to prepare it. We're seeing here the, the, the different gifts and, and uh, abilities and of how they're all needed uh, in the family of God. Naphtali, the other son of Bilhah, verse 8, or excuse me, verse um, 21, mentioned back in chapter 30 and verse 8. It isn't clear what Jacob is prophesying about this tribe. I'll leave it at that point and turn you to Calvin's commentary, which is rather interesting. Then the fourth group of the sons, the sons of Rachel, two of Jacob's sons get more attention than the others. We've seen Judah and his more extended treatment, but then Joseph is the other. Joseph receives more words from Jacob than the other brothers. Jacob's love for Joseph is evident here. His words of prophecy for Joseph are that he will be fruitful and that blessings will be abundant upon him, that though he has come through many attacks, the Lord has protected him. And that is the emphasis there. The mighty one is his protector, the God of your father. The almighty is the one who is going to deliver. And his descendants are numerous. We read in the Old Testament census data that tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were very large. Jacob acknowledges that Joseph's been through a lot, but the Lord was with him. That's the hope of God's people through the ages. The Lord is with us, that he will deliver us, that we would look to him and that we would not turn aside. Joseph was one known for his integrity, one who was faithful, speaking of how he would not sin because it would be a sin against God. No matter, no matter who did or did not find out about it, he said, no, I will not sin against God. One who was blessed for obedience, one who was filled with God's Spirit, trusting in the Lord. Final blessing is given to Benjamin. His descendants are known for their zeal. One of the descendants that we would be familiar with from the tribe of Benjamin is none other than the Apostle Paul, one who was certainly zealous for attack against the church, but then by God's regenerating grace was one who was a great evangelist and witness to God's faithfulness to his people. As was noted, the heart of this passage is found in the prophecy about Judah. It's from him that the greater son of Jacob would come, the one who would, whose reign would never end. What does Jesus say about his uh, kingdom, his, or his authority? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the one who, has, who will destroy all of our enemies, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. As we come near to the end of the book of Genesis, our eyes are drawn then upward to the God who delivers. 
We see this powerfully and vividly in Abraham and Isaac and in Jacob. We hear it again in the words of Joseph when we consider them uh, in the next chapter in coming weeks. The patriarchs are looking ahead, looking ahead at the seed promised in the covenant family is growing. Here we see the 12 sons of Jacob receiving blessing from their father. And when we look all the way to the end of the Bible, what do we see? We see the 12 tribes. Their names are written on the walls of that holy city. In Revelation 21, 12, we read of the 12, son, or 12 tribes written there on the walls of, the new, of new Jerusalem. Why is that important for us to, to move ahead? Because of all that intervenes, all that happens in between. What happens once they enter into the promised land of 400 and some odd years later? Well, there's separation, there's division, there's hatred, there's uh, disagreement to the point where it's, it's the judges, the period of the judges comes and everybody does what's right in his own eyes. Is this the end? Is it going to be over? Is it going to be destroyed? And we are reminded that by God's grace and by His sovereign power, He holds holds His people together and brings them to reunion in that coming land of rest. And the greater son of Jacob, all God's people are brought together and will be brought to glory with these brothers and fathers in the faith in that coming day. As we close, I want to look back at a verse I skipped over, and that's verse 18. In the middle of the prophecy, Jacob stops. I don't know if you noticed that and find it rather odd. It certainly jumps out at us. He's going through the prophecies, and he's talking about this hardship and that difficulty and, 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 and that issue. And then he says in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And that is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. He wants to strengthen himself and his sons with this testimony. He says, of all that I say to you, of all the prophesying that I may, all the prophecy that I make of your hardship, of your blessing, of your, your difficulty, and of your, uh, um, of your delight, do not forget to look to the Lord. He is your salvation. Jacob's not a self-made man. And his sons had no hope of security in anyone other than God. And that is true for us today, brothers and sisters. And it's true for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no other hope than to look to God, the one who is the foundation of our salvation. What is Jacob doing here? He's preaching the gospel to his sons, we could say. He's preaching the gospel to his sons in the midst of the description of what is to come. So it is today, parents, teach your children to look to the Lord for true blessing, for deliverance, for wisdom. They must not look anywhere else. They cannot hope for salvation from any other source. Listen to the courage in Jacob's words as he's talking and he's, 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 he's pronouncing these things and, and yet he says, but this is... The sum of the matter, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's the content of Jacob's words. He doesn't promise his sons a life of ease. And we remind our children that though they follow after Christ, they will do so as they take up their cross and bear much that is unpleasant 
But it is meant and is used of God to turn them to him. That is what we need to remind them of. To point them to the cross where all their sins were atoned for and ours. Cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach your children too. We didn't have time to develop this. I thought about doing a number of sermons on this and and taking different bits and pieces. But let me just say this uh, piece that I wanted to spend more time with this. Teach your children that sin has consequences. Not only for this generation, but for generations on. We can see that in the words of Jacob to Reuben. And we can see it in many other ways in Simeon and Levi and the, the other brothers. Make that clear. It's no small thing to sin against God. It has long-lasting consequences. When we fail our children, we establish potentially bad patterns. We can't say that God won't graciously deliver them from that, but we do not do them a service when we are not living obediently to him in all things that he sets before us. And finally, remind your children that God is sovereign and faithful to save. That he is sovereign and faithful to save. These are blessed words. It's what it says at the end of our passage this morning that where we ended, it says the father, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to them. Speak truth, lead well, pray fervently, and point to Christ. That's the way of blessing. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can use that title for you because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. We pray that your Spirit would be at work in us, that we would be loath to sin against you, and that we would delight to obey you. That we would see growth in our journey of faith, and that we would see it and delight in it when it's in, seen in our children as well. And as the church moves forward, the church militant, proclaiming truth, Lord, help us to be bold, courageous to speak, but not vengeful in our actions, not wishing ill upon our enemies, but that they would be saved. For you, O Lord, are the one who judges. It is in your hand. It is ours to be edified and to multiply by the work of your Spirit, not by our power. O Lord, help us to have open minds and open hearts that we would receive the word and be built up in the faith, that we would go out then and share it knowing that it is your power under the salvation of those who believe. That we can say to all those who've come through many trials and tribulations and who are dealing with prosperity and all these other things, that we wait for your salvation, O Lord. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.